All right, boys and girls, welcome to the Sports Psych MDs podcast, episode number 35. 35. How you living, y'all? What's going on? We are so happy to be back. Uh, as always, we have another very exciting episode in store. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about what could have been a classic sports story. Um, you know, the story of the athlete with all the promise and all the praise and all the accolades in the beginning of their careers, who in the end just don't seem to measure up. Yeah. What's yeah. the story behind that? Didn't quite reach their potential. And we're going to relate this all back to what we've talked about, these five traits of a champion, of an alpha, of a leader, of an individual, the foundational pieces of resilience, because ultimately it's the resilience that's going to lead you to, to being successful, reaching your goals, reaching your quote unquote potential. And we're going to focus in on something a little bit different, which is self-awareness. So we're going to be diving deep into that. We're going to talk a lot about intrinsic motivation, why it's so important to be motivated from within and not necessarily from the praise you receive from the outside and how important it is to connect and communicate with, with your teammates, with others. So buckle your seatbelts. Sports Psych MD's podcast coming right at you. Let's go. Do, do you feel me? Do you feel me? Do you feel me? Welcome back to the Sports Psych MD's podcast. Um, it's going to be really interesting today. We got a, a special episode on... I think a topic we all can really uh, get behind. It, it's the topic of what could have been. Oof. You know? In this episode, we're going to want to talk a little bit about, you know, these these players that we all know about. You know, we've all you know, grown to love and, and hate, uh, you know, depending on, on where you sit. Because, man, you know, these are guys that, that had so much potential, Right. You know, these are guys that we saw them come up maybe at the high school or college level. We saw them dominate, you know, at the amateur levels. And, you know, we we saw that they had so much promise, right? You know, guys we thought were going to be the next big deal, right? High draft picks, uh, blue chip athletes at, you know, the, the, the junior levels. Yeah, there'll be a couple guys but, that were mentioned as the next Michael Jordans. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, all kinds of accolades, but but when put right in those positions, right to to really show what they could do in the big moments, you know, it, it seemed like time after time, guys didn't rise to the occasion. Mm-hmm. And, they, didn't, they didn't quite measure yeah. up. To whether it was the media's expectations, the fans' expectations, or maybe their, even their own expectations. So I think how we're going to tie this in, and unfortunately the last dance, the docu-series with Michael Jordan's ending around this time, but we've been talking a lot about role players, even like Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, alphas like Michael Jordan. Um, we did a draft analysis and team chemistry analysis. We talked about these five traits, and we've talked about them ad nauseum, the resilience, the mindfulness, the gratitude, the passion, the communication, the confidence, and we're going to relate those traits, those attributes to these, what could have been type players and kind of try to analyze what exactly went wrong or were we just off in our expectations? Yeah. I like that. 
were we just off on our expectations? But, you know, it's interesting. I, I heard you also say with that, what went wrong. And, um, you know, the first thing I thought about was that narrative, what went wrong, you know, that's, that's kind of part of the problem. Um, I think that's really the issue, both for the player and for the fans that support the player, is the narrative of what went wrong, right? Mm -hmm. When in fact, the narrative really should be what went right, you know, or what should have gone right. And perhaps it becomes more of a story of missed opportunity. Yeah. Or, or to not be, not put labels on it and to just be mindful, just what exactly, exactly happened, whether it was what should have happened or, or didn't happen. It's what happened and kind of we can digest maybe why there was an incongruence between expectations, potential and reality. Absolutely, man. And I think where, where we're going to end up probably, and we'll see, you know, how the conversation goes. Um, but, you know, it feels to me like a conversation like this, right? When the questions of what could have been or the what ifs, you know, start to dominate the conversation, I can't help but start thinking about this principle of identity, right, that we keep coming back to and, and how important it is in performance and really in all aspects of life, but, you know, particularly for sports, um, to know who you are, mm -hmm. right, really accept and embrace who you are uh, as a performer, you know, what you bring to the table um, and really being very honest about that, very real about that, but ultimately embracing that, yeah. you know, and uh, realizing that that's really the key to your happiness as a performer. Yeah. I think what you're speaking of is that self-awareness yeah. of your ability and that really feeds into the confidence aspect we've talked about and whether or not that's a true confidence or a false confidence. And before we get into the nitty gritty, these are all kind of pieces of resilience, which we've talked about ad nauseum. And I want to, the reason we bring it up so much is that Armin and I, we're really trying to continue this paradigm shift within mental health, within psychiatry, within the overall field of mental health, mental wellness, mental fitness to not, we're not just treating pathology, not just treating illness disorders. We're not just looking at what's wrong. Like you mentioned, not just looking at risk factors, but we want to look at an individual's strengths and how those strengths can positively influence their mental health, their mental fitness and their overall well-being. So we're really going to focus on these attributes as strengths that certain individuals have, like, like the alphas, like the Michael Jordans, or how we can turn these into strengths for individuals that are maybe lacking in these areas. It starts with awareness, right? Like you said, and over time, right? It becomes a matter of, like we said, embracing. Um, and, and I think, you know, as that process unfolds, the journey becomes one of, you know, resilience, uh, mm. you know, just coming back to that because resilience, uh, you know, that suggests a strong, sturdy foundation, yeah. identity, one 
that, you know, when they say like, you know, well, I think identity is a foundation travels. of resilience, you know, when they like terms like that defense travels and, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, that's what it, it means that like, it's not going to be a matter of circumstance that dictates the outcome, right? It's going to be, it's all, it's always going to come back to you. You're yeah. going to be able to dictate the outcome and performance, right? Because you're going to be able to call upon your own internal strengths, right? Yes. Your internal resilience factors mm-hmm. um, in order to transform performance into whatever you need, whatever your team needs in order to be successful. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I always go back to, I love that, that play game seven Lakers Celtics, Kobe Bryant, right. He, he you know, in that, that huge play down the stretch where he hands the ball to Meta World Peace, right? Uh, Formerly known as Ron Artest. I mean, he brings the ball up the floor. Obviously, you know, it's Kobe. Like everybody is, you know, chanting Kobe, Kobe. You know, it's like it's his time. It's Kobe's time. But, but he understood based on the flow of that game and kind of what was happening that the right play was to get the ball in our test hands so that his team, you know, would, would ultimately walk away with the W. Yeah, he was struggling with his yeah. shot late in that game. So he had the awareness. And it was. And and what's so interesting about that is it's a, it's a totally unique spin on the term confidence. And I, that's why I really want to highlight this because I think it's so important. Confidence is not about you getting the glory or you, you know, having what it takes to go get that glory um, it's really not, not even about you. It's not, yeah, it's right? not about it's thinking really about you're the baddest person in the room. No, not at all. It's about understanding that no matter what happens, like no matter how things play out, no matter who gets the last shot, who takes it, you know, it's you're still you, you still bring what you bring to the table, whatever that is, and you're valuable no matter what, right? Ir- irrespective of really the outcome, even you know, win, lose, or draw you are still great. Uh, yeah. And, you know, looking back next time, that's, you know, that's, you'll be great. That's that confidence. That's that strong sense of self, being able to know that's that right. you're, you're going to be effective in dealing with whatever you have to deal with, whatever's in front of you. You have confidence in yourself. So I want to try to paint this picture. And we're going to, we're creating this mental fitness program and we're going to have all this written out so you can visualize it. I know sometimes it's difficult to just listen and keep this on your head, but resilience is the overarching main building that all of these different resilience factors, like you mentioned, fall under. Ultimately, the reason why we kind of pinpoint resilience is because that's been identified in studies as a factor directly correlated to like what you said, individuals' well-being along with long-term functioning, less anxiety, less depression, being overall more happy. So in that better performance at work, better performance within relationships, when you are resilient, all these things come to fruition. So what are the building blocks of resilience? What are the foundations? We've mentioned this. Part of it is, yes, having self-awareness, being confident in yourself. We've talked about it before. Having the capacity to be mindful, having ability to practice mindfulness. I don't think confidence and self-awareness can be achieved without mindfulness. I think mindfulness is sort of the gateway to, to, to confidence and self-awareness. Awareness. Absolutely, because mindfulness is is something where 
you bring your undivided attention to what's happening within yourself, but also around yourself. So that in and of itself is creating that self-awareness. And, and when individuals act mindfully, you're more likely your, your actions are more consistent with your values and your interests. So it benefits everyone to be able to be mindful. But gratitude is sort of like a parallel to mindfulness is the gateway to control of the external narrative. And that external reward or extrinsic reward process um, that, that we all go through and we're gonna talk a lot about on this show. But when you have gratitude, it's, it's so great and, and sort of rewarding and reinforcing because, you know, it connects us to that mindful inner monologue, but then also binds that narrative with, you know, how we see ourselves with respect to the world around us, right? And how, you know, what we allow into our, our minds um, in terms of what other people say uh, about us and how we let that affect us, right? So right? how we, yeah. I see what you're saying. I think, yeah, I think a, an easy way to explain gratitude is just having that positive filter going out of your way, putting an effort to have a positive filter, to look at the things that are positive in your life and, and take note and say, thanks, be thankful for your family, be thankful for your friends, be thankful for the, the job you have, be thankful that you're in the NBA, be thankful that the weather is nice. Be thankful that there's trees, be thankful that you can breathe Reinforces that positive energy, man, that our emotions really need to thrive. So I wanted to, to expand on one aspect of gratitude that we haven't talked about, and that is not only being grateful for what you have around you, but also being grateful for who you are, having more self-compassion. And this is something we talk a lot about in psychiatry and psychology is as another kind of key or factor into building resilience is giving yourself a break. Um, that positive filter isn't meant for you to just put on when you're looking at things outside yourself, but also you got to be compassionate to yourself. Sometimes you got to tell yourself you're doing the best you can in the situation. And that alone can provide positive reinforcement. Um, like you said before, just you're creating positive energy, positive vibes to move you in a direction of resilience. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Um, but, you know, this is how uh, we envision the journey to resilience, you know, is really having a strong appreciation for mindfulness practice uh, and how that can yield confidence and self-awareness and self-acceptance. Um, how it can also really enable us to have a, a voice um, and, and a, a voice that enables us to, you know, feel compelled to convey our needs to others, right? Mm -hmm. And that's such an important uh, thing to have as a teammate, really, is, is being able to, you know, communicate effectively with the guys around you to say, hey, this is what I need from you, you know, allowing them, of course, to be able to, to do the same in return and being able to receive that. Um, and these things form the foundation, really, uh, especially once you're able to integrate the gratitude practice 
for, for becoming passionate, for becoming passionate mm-hmm. about what you're doing. And that passion is going to be what fuels you to yeah. becoming better and better. You, you, know? you mentioned connectedness and being able to communicate. That's, that's extremely valuable. You have to be able to relate and relate to the individuals around you because we're social beings at the end of the day and we feed off each other. And it's important to be able to, and that goes back to what we talked about before being able to communicate and it doesn't necessarily have to be verbal communication. You can lead by example, Michael Jordan, he was an extremely strict and expected a lot out of his teammates, but he didn't expect them to do anything. He wasn't already doing by leading, leading by example. So it's always important to try to stay connected, especially in a team sport um, and be able to relate to your peers in some sort of way. And then you mentioned before you were talking about this intrinsic motivation. And this is something that we're going to talk about more today. And we've talked about another podcast, being able to be intrinsically motivated, um, motivated by your own values, by your own goals, and not by the validation you get from the cheers from the fans or the praise you get from your family or friends, or even by the confetti falling down from the rafters, you are motivated by your own principles, what you set forth, what you, what you describe. Yeah. Although money is a pretty big, it's hard to walk away from. Yeah. Uh, But no, I, you know, it's uh, man, I, I tell you what, I, I saw a great example of this on this most recent uh, part of the docuseries episode seven and eight in we saw this story, which I think is such a compelling part of the Bulls '90s dynasty, where remember there that those two, that what year and a half period in which uh, MJ retired? What was it like '93, '94, something like that? '94, '95. Um, and uh, during that period, you know, I mean, he kind of took everybody by surprise, right? Uh, he, the the uh, announcement of his retirement in spite of the fact that it was in the wake of his father's death, you know, so it probably should have been more obvious to people than, than it, it was, but, um, but he definitely needed a break, uh, from, from basketball. Um, he went on to fulfill, uh, his father's dream for him. Mm-hmm. Um, Another boy and one of his boyhood dreams. Yeah, absolutely. So it was cool. And during that period of time though, the bulls again, taken by surprise by his decision really didn't, you know, have, time i think to to retool so they went with scotty you know uh who was the number two in the first three year period um of, of championships as you know their primary ball handler leading scorer essentially he took over as the number one and uh you know as uh fate may have it um the team did pretty well under Scotty's leadership, you know, and they even describe in this episode how it was cool. Like the other players liked the fact that, you know, they had a different type of leader in the locker room and on the floor, a guy that would pick them up when they were down would, you know, sort of congratulate them when they did well. And, and it was a very different experience. And apparently a lot of the guys did, you know, respond well to that. Um, So they were successful. I, I think they were, you know, one of the top seeds that that first year and they went into the playoffs with a lot of promise. 
Scotty was a great player. He was considered, I think, unanimously, universally to be a top two player in the league that year. So he really did step up to the plate um, in terms of, you know, filling the big shoes of Michael Jordan. But I think the the really compelling, most compelling um, part of that episode was in that, um, I think it was game, I want to say, two or three. I think game three of the uh, second round series against the Knicks. The the, the Knicks series in the second round of the uh, Eastern Conference. They were down two. Playoffs. And um, there was this crazy thing that happened that really blew my mind because I guess I was, I just, I didn't remember the story quite like that. Um, But what happened, so it was literally a tie ball game um, with like what, two 0.7 0.7 seconds left. I mean, somewhere in there between two and three seconds left, like virtually only time for really one play. The Bulls uh, had the ball. Basically, you know, they had time to inbound the ball, you know, get a shot off. And um, Coach Jackson, Phil Jackson, you know, he, he wrote up a play. And apparently, this is a play they had run many times during the regular season. And it was a play ultimately involving having Scotty as a the guy inbounding the ball and uh, Tony Kukoc would get the ball. I think was it the left wing, right wing. And anyway, uh, you know, apparently hit this game winner in previous games during the regular season. So anyway, they called the play. Everybody knew the play. Apparently Scotty shuts it down during the timeout right there. um, Right before they're about to go onto the court. And uh, Scotty's like, hell no, I'm not running this play. I'm the best player on the team. I'm the best option. Why wouldn't you give the ball to me? And I guess they didn't have time to argue about it. Um, so coach was like, look, this is the play we're going to run. Let's, let's do this, right? And, you know, coach is ready. You know, he's, he's, he's confident. Pippen ended up staying back on the bench opting not to go into the game. They had to get some random guy in there. Uh, the whole team's just like, what's going on, right? All the fans, everybody. Michael Jordan, yeah, so a teammate was uh, actually giving him play-by-play while he was in you know, his locker room, of course, now with his baseball franchise. Um, but, you know, they interviewed him afterwards to kind of get his thought, thoughts on this. But ultimately, Tony Kukoc hit the game winner. You know, team won, so it's obviously a big playoff game. You're, you're thinking the team would be super excited, and, and no. I mean, they described it as, like, just very disturbing to the team and kind of this, like, really big moment for the team that, like, their top player, the guy they were look, they had looked to all season long to show leadership, um, let them down in kind of the biggest moment. Yeah. And ultimately, the team never really recovered from that and lost that series. You know, so you sort of ask yourself almost, like, what could have been, you know, if, if Scotty had, had actually stepped up, done what was right, you know, done, you know, what the team needed yeah. uh, in that moment, as opposed to what Scotty needed. Yeah. I think we want to highlight, we highlight that one event, maybe making it seem like maybe that's what ended up doing them in at the end, but maybe Scotty just wasn't the guy. And we talked a little bit about last episode, how Phil Jackson just empowered the players to take care of that situation. And, and Bill Cartwright was the one vocal in the locker room, actually getting tearful and crying, asking Scotty, like, how could you do this? And ultimately, yeah, Scotty wasn't, wasn't the guy in that situation to, to, to step up and step aside for the greater good to get that win. And 
they they didn't want to change his legacy mm -hmm. first. You know, I mean, having that great season, being kind of MVP candidate, filling in for Michael Jordan in an unprecedented way, and he could have had it all. But yeah, you know, that was. I think it's just a reminder that he is the was the best number two guy in the history of the game. Um, he was great at what he did. Probably no one else better. No one else could have been a better sidekick. Let's go behind the curtain, though. Like, what what in the world was Scotty thinking? Like, what what happened there, man? I I think it comes back to what you were saying a minute ago. I really do about this intrinsic rewards in you know mot motivation where. I am not motivated by, for example, what coach thinks, right, uh, or what anybody else thinks. I'm I'm going to do what's right, you know, because, you know, for me, I know that I'm great. You know, I, I know what I've accomplished this season. I know what I mean to the team. I know that I did something by filling in MJ's shoes and doing it the way that I I did it that um, I don't really have to do anything else to prove my value to this team. Right. And, um, and to that point, I don't need that reinforcement, that validation from the coach. I don't need him to draw up that last second shot for me because I already know that I'm great, yeah. but he, he desperately needed that. Yeah, man. He needed that. He needed that extrinsic, reward you know he needed the coach's validation he needed the team's validation hey you know you guys believe in me and you know that for him when he didn't get that um you know he he had nothing unfortunately on the inside to to pull from to give him the strength to get in the game and do what was right you know mm -hmm. And that's why ultimately, that's why he fit best as as the number two, as as Michael Jordan's sidekick, as as the sidekick to maybe the, the biggest alpha in all of sports, the most driven, the most autonomous, the most confident person with the strongest sense of self of, of any athlete we've ever seen. He fit perfectly if he could just kind of be in his shadows and, and do what he did. Um, but when he was asked to kind of do it, do it in himself, kind of lost his way. What could have been? You know, I mean, to be to be uh, to be yeah. real though, he he's a top five MVP candidate that year. They got to the second round. That's nothing to knock yourself about. That he's a great NBA player in his own right, and he would have been great without Michael Jordan. But he never would have won six championships. But did he know that? Right. I mean, had he completely embraced that? Mm -hmm. I mean, we knew it. You know, uh, we could see it. The numbers definitely proved it um all the evidence was there yeah goes back to that self-awareness exactly it's confidence piece so maybe he had a he had a false confidence in that situation lacked a little bit of self-awareness um in that role but then he to give him credit slid perfectly back into that that role that he thrived in that he could be confident in and the team rallied around him when Michael Jordan came back, he didn't get ostracized. So he showed some resilience. He sure did, you know, for three years, um, you know, but then it seems like those thoughts, you know, slowly started to creep back in there. Oh, he's, um, he had to get paid at some point. That, yeah. He got to get a little <laughs> bit of external validation. 
So we right, that's the one thing. I mean, we got to give him a little bit of credit because he was playing for pennies on the dollar with those Chicago Bulls. So maybe maybe he the least they could have done is draw up a last second play for him. But you know, you you wonder, right? It's always it's like what could have been. You know, what if? I mean, what if he had gone to that game and and you know done what he had to do? What if they won that mm-hmm. Knicks series um, the way they probably should have? Yeah. Would they have looked at him differently? Yeah. Three sure. years, what five years later, whenever it was, when it came down to like negotiating that new contract in '98, did they? Would you know when they were in the room, at the table, with his contract sitting in front of them, right, trying to figure out what the next move was? Did they remember what happened? You know, back in yeah. was it '94? Yeah, I don't. Um, I don't think they were wanting to make him the lead dog of that team, especially with Michael Jordan not going to be there anymore. But what if uh, they would have renegotiated the contract after the three titles, and he would have, he was making more money, and he felt more appreciated, more validated. Maybe he would have been fine inbounding the ball, and maybe they would have. The oh, team wow. wouldn't have had that issue in the locker room, and maybe they could have still won that series, and maybe they could have made it farther. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I feel like we can go all day with this, mm-hmm. right? And so it always just sort of, to me, kind of comes back to this idea that, you know, you just have to kind of know who you are. Yeah. And uh, as, as a coaching staff and as teammates, you have to know who your teammates are and you have to know who your players are. Yeah, for sure. And I think that that's really what is really great about a program like this, you know, a mental fitness program. Uh, a program oriented towards wellness and wellness promoting goals, right? Because, you know, I, I feel like it really helps to connect the dots with, you know, getting to that point of like really understanding, as you said earlier, our strengths, you know, and, and how we work best, how we fit best into, you know, a team and, um, you know, how we can get the most out of who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately embrace who we are yeah, and, and develop through this process resilience. Absolutely. So let's do a quick recap before we jump into the players that we wanted to discuss the what could have been. So resilience, that's the overarching theme. How do you build resilience? Mindfulness, gratitude, being confident, self-aware, being able to communicate and connect with the individuals around you and having that intrinsic motivation is key. So what are some simple ways to foster that in a team sport environment? So everyone, we talked about this holding environment, but it really comes back to that having a supportive environment that emphasizes cooperation, emphasizes effort, emphasizes this personal growth. So you're not only emphasizing team goals, but you're also emphasizing personal improvement and personal growth and personal goals. So that individual buys in, like we mentioned before in the role-playing episode, those are the things that you really need to do to foster every individual throughout every culture, any gender, any race needs competence, needs to feel competent, confident, needs to feel autonomous, needs to feel like they're in control of themselves. A quick example, when you're at work nine to five, Sometimes you feel like uh, you can't get up and do everything you want to do. You're in an office, you're in a cubicle, what have you, or you're practicing with your team. You can't necessarily just do whatever you want in that moment. You can't crack a beer. Maybe you can't joke. Maybe you can't even grow your hair out long. But on the weekends, 
anybody who works nine to five knows that you can let loose, you can do whatever you want on the weekend. And that's because you're more autonomous. You're, you're able to regulate anything you do. So that's why you feel a bit, a little bit more lighter. So everyone wants a little bit of autonomy, a little bit of freedom, and then everyone needs to feel connected. So the best way to foster this is to provide that kind of supportive environment focused on team goals, but also individual goals and individual growth. Yeah. That ability to, to be autonomous, that is such an important characteristic to develop. Um, it's just a, it's just a, it's, a, it's so important. It's tough though. It, it, it's tough. It's a process. It's a process. Yeah. It really is. Can I, let me give a quick example. So just think about you're a little kid. We, we made this example before in previous podcasts, you're playing baseball or softball, your mom and dad cheer you, cheering you on when you do well, cheering you on when you play. Maybe you get snacks after the game. I remember getting crispy treats. I love getting snacks after a baseball game. <laughs> that feels good. So initially you're chasing that appraisal, that validation, those treats after the game. But over time, so that's an external motivating factors. But over time, you can internalize those factors. And eventually, maybe when you get to high school or grade school or college, and you're still playing that sport, you're, you're playing it not because of the praise, not because of the treats that you get after practice or after a game, but because you've internalized that sports are valuable to me. That's, part, that's one of my core values is to play this sport, to play baseball, and to do well. That's a core value. So now it's an intrinsic motivating factor is just to do well in the game that you love. How does it become a value? Like how, you know, how does it become a value? I, I, I mean, how does it get to a point where the practice and the performance all of a sudden becomes something internalized, you know, is like part of my, you know, uh, what I believe in and Psyche. You know, part of you healthy and strong. Like, how does that happen? It's a million dollar question. Well, you know, I, I think the way that happens is really, you know, through a, you know, experience like this, you know, a program like this. Um, but I think, you know, in theory, it's really about, I think a recognition, right? So it just, it always kind of comes back to mindfulness, right? And this mindful awareness of what the rewards are and how they align with what's important to you as a person, you know, what you're trying to be in life, what you're trying to be about in life, you know, how you're trying to define yourself as a, as a unique individual to the rest of the world, right? And these things have to be aligned you know, so for example, if you uh, ultimately want to be a person that uh, is well conditioned and, you know, a person that, you know, doesn't have to deal with the implications of, you know, uh, poor health standards um, and you want to be a person that is aesthetically pleasing to You others, want to be able to close in the fourth uh, quarter without tiring out? Exactly, man. You know, if these are things that are important to you, you can imagine how a daily ritual in which, you know, you're, you're physically active, uh, doing the cardiovascular conditioning, in addition to learning a skill set and a craft, you're also developing a skill set, you know, so that's going to be just rewarding in terms of just having confidence and competence, right? Um, you know, and then 
ultimately you're able to connect with with others you know you're getting the rewards of you know having like kind of a a peer group you know and, and ultimately all the things we've always talked about that come with that right learning about discipline hard work sacrifice mm-hmm. commitment you know all of these things i mean you're able to engage in these things if they're things that matter to you yeah. I th- on, a, on a high level every day i think you touched on something there that and there's psychologists that'll argue there's no clear science to this there's psychologists that argue either side whether um everything we do eventually starts out intrinsic or starts out extrinsic and you have to first be reinforced from outside factors and praise. And then it becomes intrinsic. Some people argue there are certain things that come from within, but I think what you mentioned is when you do overcome a challenge, you do do something that's difficult and you kind of go through the mud, but you get to get to the other side and you look back. That's intrinsically motivating. That's um, positively reinforcing, knowing that you were able to overcome something that was extremely difficult. You could physically look back in your memories and be like, that was awful. That was really hard. Those two a days during the summer, summer camp for football practice, that was awful. But here I am, first football game of the year. It's the fourth quarter and I feel great. I'm not out of energy. That's, in, that's intrinsic motivation. That's intrinsically rewarding. And then that becomes your intrinsic motivation, that feeling of overcoming that challenge. Now you're talking gratitude. And then you, yeah, then you're grateful for that and it builds on top of it. Oh yeah, absolutely, man. So we could, no, all that's that's there. This is exciting. I'm I'm looking forward to getting this all down on paper for you guys, all down in a nice, beautiful format. So it flows completely. Um, Thanks for listening to these conversations because they're important to have. And if you guys have any, any questions about this, if you have, need any clarifications about anything, reach out, hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, any of our social media pages. Oh yeah. We're going to continue the conversation for sure. Oh yeah. And go ahead and check us out on YouTube as well. So, you know, this, what could have been thing, man, we can go so many directions with this. Um, we really could. Um, it relates a lot back to the adjustment disorder podcast episode two. Yeah. Um, and, uh, when I think about the ultimate, what could have been story and, you know, isn't stories, uh, unique stories about individuals. Isn't that why we love sports ultimately? Um, and when you consider the, what could have been, you realize that, you know, there are some great stories out there, you know, I would say, uh, just about in every sport. Mm -hmm. Um, but none better than, than the NBA, right? Because this is the sport where you get to, you know, see players up close and personal and where the focus is on the the player, the individual. It's like, if you're a great basketball player, you have the ability to make a far greater impact on your team than if you're a football player, unless you're a quarterback. Um, just the matter of how many individuals are on the court and how the game's played. And we talked about this in the last few episodes. So we'll, we'll focus mostly on basketball players. And, and therefore the, the biggest impact on your individual brand, right? And, and the exposure you'll have to a fan base. Um, and, and therefore probably, you know, even more invested and passionate fans who are really looking at your, you know, your development and, and, um, you know, 
wanting the best for you, you know, having, you know, sort of high expectations of you, you know, seeing maybe flashes of greatness in you that they're really hoping will translate at the next levels. Just as Um, a superficial standpoint, like those basketball guys, they're wearing tank tops and shorts. You can really, you feel like you really know who they are almost just by looking at them versus the football players got the whole helmet, shoulder pads and all that. And the baseball players wearing the full pants and, and shirt. So it's just more revealing of a sport in all ways. No, I mean, and how many sports do you, do you see these stories where like YouTube is, is like, um, they're following a particular player from like literally freshman year of high school. Right. And, you know, you, you have like YouTube videos where Zion have like millions of, of views. Right. Uh, it's crazy. Yeah. Zion Williamson, LeBron James. I mean, I remember watching, uh, like, his, his high school games televised on ESPN, you know, uh, it's crazy. And, and so like when you're having that kind of weight, uh, at such a young age, it gets, it's, it's obviously like natural that you're going to develop a fan base. You know, it's like a lot of these childhood stars, you know, they, they develop this following because it's like, wow, they're like child prodigies. Right. Mm-hmm. That's always a really Justin Bieber's. Yeah, just a cool story. It's like wow, and and so when I think about this particular kind of story, and I compare how things started out and what sort I, I imagined that things were going to become for this person, um, versus how things sort of finished, one of the most compelling stories has got to be the Carmelo Anthony story, right? I mean, wow. Whoa, like, whoa, whoa! Now this could be controversial. You're well, telling, I mean, look, you you're know, telling me that ten-time All-Star, six-time All-NBA, a scoring champion, the third pick in the draft—are you saying he didn't reach his potential? There could have been more. What I'm saying is that um, if you consider the promise, right? If you really, you know, especially it's one thing to like watch a YouTube video or whatever; it, it's a whole other thing to actually have been there. Um, Back in the day when Carmelo Anthony was leading the, the Syracuse Orangemen to the national title as, a, as freshman. a freshman, you know, in a way that, I mean, it was just so dominant. Like we see March Madness and you know, March Madness is one of the coolest competitions because of the, the sort of tremendous just level of competitiveness, right? Even like low seeds being able to really compete at a high level against high seeds. Um, it's just great. But that was one of those years, man, where Carmelo just really took the whole tournament by storm and just proved very early yeah. on that he was the outlaw of that tournament and that, you know, he, they were the, they were the favorites kind of early on. And, and he closed that, 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 you know, he closed that, the case on that pretty convincingly, <laughs> you know, I remember he just dominated. Yeah. And it's not uh, that he, let's look at Duke last year with Zion Williamson. R.J. Barrett and Cam Reddish, three lottery picks, two of the top three picks in the draft. They didn't even make it to the final four. And Carmelo was able to lead his team to a national championship in his first oh, season. Man. I mean, he was clearly the best player in college. You know, and I I can say I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty big fan of, of college basketball. I've been watching it, you know, pretty religiously since the 80s. And I, I don't remember seeing too many – too many seasons where there was one player that was just so much 
more dominant than like the second best player. Well, D Wade was pretty sick. He had the man body. He had the moves. He just was like ready. He could like Mm -hmm. just roll him out into the NBA, like you know, just sight unseen. You know, just like he'll just go in there and start hooping because he was a pure scorer and he was a big Mm -hmm. body, big dude. So he was strong, but he had like this agility and he had all the moves. You know, post game. You could hit the mid-range, the three-pointer. I mean, he had it all. He had a great mm-hmm. arsenal. Definitely yeah. one of the best all-time scorers that we've seen. And it's natural, pure, you know, pure stroke. Um, and it just seemed like he was just very naturally gifted. Um, but, you know, one thing about Carmelo that became pretty clear, I would say early on in his um, NBA career, you know, he, he seemed to have a struggle with being coachable. And... You know, it, it's always hard. It, it's tough to say things like that because obviously I was I wasn't in the locker room. You know, I he had one of the one of the he had someone that's considered one of the best, better coaches of all time, George Carl, for sure. But that's just you know when you 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 hear folks who are close to the story talk about it, that often comes up. Um, he just was a guy that kind of seemed to be more of a me first guy than a team first guy. He was kind of worried about his points more than you know the victories and his stats and the minutes and you know it's it's kind of interesting when I think about it. I, I hadn't really thought this way before. It reminds me eerily of that that Scotty situation that we were talking about earlier with the Knicks series in in the playoffs when Scotty was number one on the Chicago Bulls team after Michael Jordan you know went into retirement. Like when he, he decided to opt out of that last play, that's kind of what seemed seemingly was was motivating him, right? Was like, I'm not getting these extrinsic rewards, right? Uh, the validation from coach, the validation from the team. So, you know, therefore, I'm not going to compete. You know, and, and that's a that's a tough narrative. When instead you have, of talking about, instead of just yeah, having the winning being enough. Exactly. That's it. It's got to be enough. It has to be enough. It has to be. That has to always take priority. If you know, if you're going to be a guy that will ultimately go on to fulfill his or her destiny, right? You gotta you gotta embrace who you are. Well, this is just a circle of wagons. Just- just look yeah. at M- MJ right now in the documentary. He's talking about how people hated on him. People still kind of hate him to this day about how he treated his teammates. But if you were to talk to actually talk to most people now and talk to his teammates now, they love him. They're all champions. And maybe the, they said he was an asshole, but they can look down and see that they're champions and they accomplished the ultimate goal that ideally any kid growing up wanting to play professional sports wants to accomplish. And that's winning a championship. So and you can just see how much Michael Jordan is revered, even though he had this this uh, reputation as being an awful teammate or being an asshole. And you saw you saw him cursing and belittling his teammates left and right, but they won. They won championships, and at the end of the day, he's still revered. Yeah, yeah, no, he is, and and it's interesting, man. Like I I remember he he did he did address this a number of times. Uh, this idea i guess of recognizing that other people um weren't 
thrilled about his leadership style and, and that, you know, there was a lot of criticism around that. Um, you know, and he at times even got kind of emotional, but he stayed true um, and just said, yeah, I mean, basically if I had to do it all, all over again, I would have done it the same way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just, it, for me, it's all about winning. And if that's not what it's about for you, then, you know, kind of like, what are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing? It, to his haters, he said, that's you. That That's the reason why you're hating on my tactics, because that's you. You never won anything. Never won anything. Yeah. So you would, you would see it that way. Spoken like a true alpha. You have nothing to lose. <laughs> so so um, let's, let's take a look at Carmelo. So he's obviously a lot of individual accolades. Um, like we mentioned, 10-time All-Star, six-time All-NBA, scoring champion, plenty of uh, endorsement deals. It's been someone that's been present in the media a lot. It actually, he, I mean, he, to give him some credit, he, he's one of the most winningest, if not the most winningest Olympic basketball player of all time. He's got several gold medals. But within the NBA, he's the furthest he's ever been is the Western Conference Finals back in the 2008-2009 season where they ended up losing to the future champions, the Lakers, in six games. They had a pretty good team, solid team. Chauncey Billups, I think Kenyon Martin. I think Dene was on that team. Pretty solid pretty solid team. Yeah, no, I mean, he's had some pretty solid opportunities. But what happened Like what happened the year after that? So that's like the peak of his powers. The next year, they, they lost in the first round. And then, and then he's the year after that, he shipped to the New York Knicks. So that's it. So, so let's, let's think about that. Question, right. What happened? What happened? So you, you go from a team within two years, you go from a team that was in the final four, taking the champions to six games. So you're really only two games away from the finals. And within two years, you're now on what many consider, even though it's the Mecca, Madison Square Garden, what many consider like one of the worst run franchises in sports right now or over the past 20 plus years. Yep. So um, was that about winning? I do remember, well, I do remember there being a pretty sizable contract involved with that decision. Yeah. Um, Not to mention, you know, I I could imagine colossal endorsement deals involved with being the center of attention in a city like New York. Plus his wife, Lala, that was former VJ on TRL. So yeah, you can't blame him for that, to be quite honest. Um, but where's, You can't blame him. What, but you can't blame him. That just points to the priorities. Yeah. So you're going to leave a team yeah. that's two wins away from the finals to go to a kind of a rebuilding upstart Knicks team with, with Amari Stoudemire. That Honestly, Tori, look, man, it's like this. It's like this, man. Look, you can't blame him. You can't. Everything you're saying is true. No, no blame. Right up until the point where he starts to quit on the team or, you know, do things like not playing to the level of his potential, right? Because his team is not winning, right? Because the decision that he made which I think we can all agree was not the best decision to make to have made if winning was your priority. Yeah, absolutely. So it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Okay. 
you don't you, your team does not perform uh, to expectations. I would say we probably uh, ultimately that was just kind of inevitable, right? But it's fine. All right, you made your choice, like you said, Tori. He got the the contract that he wanted. He's getting the money with the endorsement deals. His wife is happy. Okay, uh, he's in the center of New York City, a celebrity in you know the greatest city in the world, you know by by many standards. What what's wrong? What's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that, mm-hmm. as long as you've embraced who you are, as long as you have decided that this is this decision was the right decision for me. I am accepting the fact that I'm going to a team that will most likely not be, you know, contending for a championship and it's fine. You know, you just, you, you embrace that. You have a nice career, you make a lot of money and then you move on with your life, right? That's how it it, it could have been. Um, but it felt to me like at some point he began to lament his decision uh, because, you know, he felt like his decision should have uh, put him in a position to win a championship. And and that's where things kind of started to go, go wrong. Yeah. And, and maybe it pointed to, he prioritized different things at the time he made that decision. Maybe he, he believed, he truly believed that he could lead the Knicks to a championship, whether that points to a lack of awareness, whether that points to a Knicks management that, didn't do a good job building around him, whether that points to Amari Stoudemire getting hurt and never returning to form like he was with the Suns, whatever it points to, he only won, he's only won one playoff series since he only won one playoff series with the Knicks, obviously had some injuries later in his career, went to OKC for one year, teamed up finally at this point, teamed up, wasn't necessarily the alpha, uh, but they got, they got knocked out in the first round and then kind of bounce around since then kind of made a resurgence this year. I'm great. It's great to see him in the league. And now it seems like he's, he's embracing a new role, which is great. I would love for the season to start back. I would love for Portland to squeeze in there, get that eight seed, maybe do some damage, maybe upset the Lakers. But is it just a, a, a tale of him waiting too long to become, exactly to, to change his priorities point. or becoming exactly. more aware? Time. That's the one thing you can't have back, right? Um, a lot of things you can find your way back to. Time is something you can never have back. And, you know, with professional athletes, as with probably, you know, any, anything uh, that requires talent and skill in performance, you have a window, right? A window of greatness. It's not, it's not going to last forever. Um, you know, that window, maybe five years, maybe 10 years, maybe 15 years, if, you know, you're a legendary athlete like LeBron James, but whatever that is, um, you have to really figure it out within that time frame in order to make the most of your, your talents and skills. And in his case, uh, it, it, it seems like it, it took almost his entire career before he realized that his skill set, given his mindset, was probably going to be best served for, you know, a number two or number three. In order to win a championship? In order to win a championship. In order to win at the highest level. Yeah, and I think there's definitely scenarios where I think he definitely could have won as the one. 
a la Dirk Nowinski with the Dallas Mavericks if the team was built perfectly around him. But you're right. I think ultimately, and this is the I don't question. know. That's that's the that's now. This is a great question, and and I'm not going to disagree if, with you if he would have accepted his role. That's the beauty of this question. Like, what could have been? I mean, you just never really know. You know, we we can't make predictions in life on, on guarantee. I mean, we can only sort of really try to do the best we can. And and I, I would I look at Carmelo, and now that we sort of see, you know, kind of the the full scope of his career, um, I just don't know. I, I I I kind of feel like we know who he is. Yeah. We've known him for a while. And and I just I think that even with the right situation, the right team, right, the you know, all of those things, the the mindset being what it has been. Um, I think it, it it would have somehow, some way prevented him from achieving that ultimate goal as the guy in the number one position okay. having all the pressures and all the forces over this, the span of a regular season and deep playoff run, right, to be the last man standing at the end. I've come to realize, man, that people – that are capable of doing that, they are few and far between. Like it's not something that just is is gifted to everyone. <clears throat> There's only a few Michael Jordan like figures uh, that can go into combat, put the team on their back, right? Because there's so many different nuances to it in terms of the mindset, but they can really put the team on their back. And go the full distance. So let me get this straight. So you're saying he, his mindset was that I'm someone like a Michael Jordan. I'm going to put the team my back. We're going to win with me having the ball in my hands, controlling the pace, being that ball stopping shooter. I'm going to have the ball at the last seconds and we're going to win that way. And that wasn't going to be possible. And that also he couldn't adapt in his prime to be a type of Dirk Nowinski who would take more of a be the alpha, but also take more of a passive secondary role, more of a so selflessness. Exactly. He wouldn't yeah. be able to have that selflessness. Tim Duncan is, is a great example too, right? He's not, he was not a primary ball handler. He left the, the responsibility to Tony Parker, but he was so steady, so solid mm-hmm. as a rock. In all these other areas, his leadership shine through for the team in the big moments, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, on and on. So, but here's, here's, we, we need to really not, we, we can't miss the opportunity to explain and really understand it, I think for ourselves through the conversation, why, you know, like why Carmelo, um, even given the perfect situa- situation, even given the perfect situation, even given the perfect situation um, would likely have had the same result. I look at it like this. So we think about the Michael Jordan documentary, going back to that. There's a, a part of this whole like persona that he had that to me is just, is so interesting. Um, you talk about how mean he was, you know, how he treated, you know, other guys and, and how 
you know, he sort of dictated, you know, the, the practices and, and the game in such a way where he led by fear, right? He wasn't trying to be anybody's friend and led by fear. And, and, and you had to be on his level. He was going to push you until he felt comfortable that you were someone that could compete alongside him on a championship run. So you ask yourself, well, why were guys like these grown men, in some cases even bigger than him, why were they willing to put up with this? Like, why were they willing to deal with this? Why do they allow him to be this guy, right? How did it come to pass that, you know, in these, in these moments that they trusted in him to be that guy, right? It's because, uh, did you see that? Did you see like when they were in practice doing like the suicide runs? He was like by far like the fastest guy yeah. in suicides, man. Like just outpacing everybody. You could see the other guys just struggling to keep up with them. Mm-hmm. He was having fun with them, just yeah. killing them. Yep. Whenever you see that in your best player, man, that's scary. Like if you've ever been in team sports before, you are, you know, everybody knows the best player is when that guy is also like the, the, the gym rat, the first to the like gym, the last to leave. Oh my God. You're like, dude, you're, that that's just respect. You know what I mean? Like, cause it's like, he doesn't really have to be that guy. Like, you know, it doesn't have to be that guy to get the, the points, you know, to get the ball. He doesn't have to be mm-hmm. uh, showing off in practice to be considered the best but he's doing it to prove a point. These things matter. They make a huge impact on teammates. He was also one of the better defenders on the team, right? He was a guy mm-hmm. that was going to not be afraid to take on the team's other team's best score, right? While he also was his team's best score. So he's expending more energy yeah. than anybody else, taking on more responsibility than anyone else. And these things matter to your teammates. These are the things that are going to, ultimately bind your teammates to you in these big moments, earn their trust. And this is something that a guy, unfortunately, like a Carmelo, isn't bringing to the table. Well, that's that communication piece. That's that connected piece. And in the same breath, that's also that intrinsic motivation. Michael Jordan, his motivation was winning. He valued winning above anything. He valued competition and winning competition above anything. That was his priority and his only priority. So that always rang true, and that showed up in practices. That showed up before practices. That showed up everywhere. So we can't, like we said before, you can't blame Carmelo for not prioritizing winning. So maybe he didn't. He wasn't intrinsically motivated like that. Now we can't speak to whether he was more so motivated by different things. Maybe he was motivated by the money and the endorsements and the different things. But if he would, like you said, if he would have. Maybe he needed to have that intrinsic motivation in order to communicate more and connect to his teammates more effectively to raise their gameplay, to become a champion. There's all these different pieces. Speaking of communication, mm-hmm. one really important thing um, that, that I think communication fosters at a high level, both internally and externally, right? So there's this sort of self-fulfilling process uh, that ensues when you communicate effectively, which is building trust, right? So trust in yourself, right, enables you to really, uh, you know, communicate 
confidence, right? And and strength to those around you. Comes infectious. Uh, they feed off that energy. They feed off that energy. And, you know, in those waning moments of the game, right, the last two minutes, last one minute, the last 30 seconds, you know, when it's like time's running out, close game, there's only a few plays left, right? Like, you you know, starts, things are getting tight. Um, you When you see your best player looking confident, right, trust factor, it, you know, it, it just becomes so infectious. And, and guys look to that guy to, to be the one that, you know, gives them strength to let them know that things are going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And that takes character, man. That takes strong internal character strengths. And, you know, I just wondered to myself, not having been a guy in those locker rooms or on the floor, on the court during these moments, but I just wonder how the what could have been like Carmelo Anthony. I just wonder how his teammates looked to him or what they thought about him in those moments. You know, did they, did they have that trust that he was going to make the right play, that he was going to be all about winning? Um, what was he communicating to them in those moments mm-hmm. and how did that affect the outcome? That's beautifully said, but at the end of the day, we don't know if Carmelo Anthony's looking at his career now in the NBA and he's, sat- he's satisfied. Maybe he, 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 if he would have had to do it all over again, he would have done it the same way. And we're not advocates of looking back and and trying to reminisce and and have regret. Not at all. But is he content? Is he content being a 10 time all-star six time all NBA with no championships? Well, reflection is a natural part of life. I mean, you know, I think it's, it's an important thing to, to be able to do. I just think that when you're going through a process like that, you want to be mindful of what vibes you're getting. You know, when you're going through that mental process of reflection, like if you're getting, you know, vibes of, as you kind of, kind of alluded, like peace of mind, contentment, you know, and feeling like, Hey, you know, I did my best, gave my best effort, did, you know, all I could do, I left it all on the court. I think, you know, you, you can you can have that thought process, you know, that reflection experience, and it can actually be a very positively reinforcing one, one that actually continue, exactly continues momentum, right, into, into the future. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what you want, right? That's ultimately always the outcome you want to have when it comes to relating to, to your past, right? In, in reflection is I'm satisfied. I accept things for how they have happened. I embrace this moment now, right? Without judgment. And now I can move forward, right? Into a better future when I can you know, be, be very hopeful in and inspired by, but ultimately always staying in the moment really to be focused on the best next step, making that best next step, right? That's the process. What would be 
what would you say to the individuals, maybe the guys from New York? And I, I wanted to do a New York accent, but I can't quite pull it off. That would say, well, at least during the height of Carmelo's powers, his prime, he didn't join yeah. forces with his buddies. He didn't join forces with other top players in the league. At least he, he, he tried to do it on his own. What would you say to that? Well, I'd say, you know, if you're starting a conversation off with at least, then I think you're, you're kind of already starting off on the, on the wrong foot. But, you know, I, I think that a conversation about greatness and professional performance at a high level is going to always come back to winning. You know, it's just going to always come back to like, what was the outcome? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, you can talk about what the process was, you know, that went into the performance and you can break down the performance. And we have some great journalists and sports writers out there that are really good at this, you know, in the, and now we have this analytics field and this is all great stuff. But at the end of the day, what was the outcome? Right. Did you win? Right. Did you lose? Or was there a draw? Like what, you know, what was yeah. the outcome? And if we're not talking, it's kind of like, you know, with Kobe, if we're not talking about banners and we're not talking about rings and championships, you know, what are we really talking about? You yeah. Know, we, we're just having fun. Yeah. So I think the counter to that would be like, well, maybe Carmelo didn't prioritize winning. So he accomplished what he wanted to accomplish. But now you see him joining on teams with hopes of winning a title, joining Portland this year although they've been off to a rough start. So I think you're right. I think he does value winning. And at the end of the day, he'll look back and never won a championship, which is going to be a tough pill to swallow. Um, but I think he'll be okay. I want to contrast this with Kevin Garnett's story real quick before we end this. Because Kevin we, Garnett. Yeah, we brought a good what could have been athlete. And we could talk more about like Chris Paul kind of fits similarly in the Carmelo Anthony story. Uh, to a lesser yeah. degree, we have Chris Webber who also extreme promise coming out of college fab five first overall pick in 1993. We have like players like Grant Hill, Penny Hardaway, these guys that were at one point labeled the next Michael Jordans. But I don't know if we have time to get into those guys. Did you want to touch on any of them? No, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, each one has a unique story. And when you, again, measure up all that, potential that you saw not to say that you know they weren't you know good and in some cases even great NBA players in their own right but man like we're talking about in some cases guys that had LeBron James like you know maybe not that scale but you know close to it potential mm-hmm. uh, I'm gonna add the uh, the amateur level and you know with the whole world in front of them and and so it kind of makes you scratch your head a little bit now looking back wondering if they're even going to be hall of fame candidates right whereas at one time you kind of said to yourself man it's you know a no-brainer yeah and, and i think one thing that all those guys have in in common is great starts to the careers made all nba teams injuries injuries and this goes back to the adjustment disorder they injuries are were always kind of the the initial thing that caused the downfall of their careers. And who knows, maybe if they played in this day and age with the advancements in medical treatments and conditioning programs, 
they could have overcame those injuries easier and then maybe they would have played fuller and had reached their potential in their careers. But there's also that mental component that all most likely factored into it that compounded the kind of downfalls of the of the Penny Hardrays and the Grant Hills and the Chris Webbers. Although Chris Webber did make a bounce back with the with the Sacramento Kings kind of later in his career. Um, almost made it to a championship. Probably should have. Yeah. yeah. But I wanted to mention Kevin Garnett because for the longest time, he looked like he was destined to be a what could have been type player. This is someone who drafted fifth overall out of high school, but the first player That's um, right. the, year, the year before Kobe um, in 1995 and someone 15 all-stars. He was the MVP in 2004 played with the Timberwolves with Starberry. I remember having a, a KG and a Starberry poster in my room as a kid. Um, that was an electric combination, but, they lost at one point in the playoffs in the first round six years in a row. So he, he finally got the ball rolling in 2003, 2004. Had, that's when they had Sam Cassell, Latrell Sprewell, 58 wins, got an MVP, made it out of the first round for the first time in the playoffs. Ended up beating the Kings in seven games and lost the Lakers in six games in the Western Conference Finals. So this is, this is about, what, eight years into his career, not too bad. But what happens? The next two years, he misses the playoffs. And what happens in 2007? He probably took, similarly, maybe to around Carmelo made this decision, kind of similar trajectory. They both, they both make the Western Conference Finals around like six, seven, eight years in the league. Yeah. And they, they have losing seasons directly after that. And two different decisions are made. Carmelo goes to New York become to become the alpha on a losing franchise. Mm. Kevin Garnett decides to be the leader of the big three and joins forces with Ray Allen and Paul Pierce for the Celtics. And yeah. I guess the rest is history from there. They won that a championship that first year together. And yeah. he's, he's going to be a remembers that, uh, that, that clip of that moment where KG is like, I guess he's being interviewed. Mm -hmm. They just won, you know, like got all the confetti in the background. And he's like, anything is possible. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, dude. Yeah, no, it was cool. It was like that great, you know, moment of exuberance and this is that release of, you know, all the the work, all the effort. And in his case, I mean, I I really believe, you know, part of it was the fear that, hey, this thing may not work out for me, you know? So I think it was a huge deal. Validation. Huge deal. No, there it is. Yeah. But, you know, and I wonder, uh, it's for me, I kind of feel like, like Paul Pierce may have actually been, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if Paul Pierce was the alpha dog. I mean, he kind of seemed like he was, it was certainly his Boston Celtics team. Um, You you bring up a good point, though. I think you bring up a good point because Garnett is power forward, obviously, so he's not going to be the guy with the ball in his hands. Pierce is obviously someone who has the ball in his hands a lot more, and he never had someone. I mean, he had Latrell Sprewell and uh, Marbury, but they they weren't those types of guys like a Paul Pierce. Paul Pierce is a guy that he's not afraid, you know, Mm -hmm. to take that shot. Um, He can make that shot. And they also so, have yeah. the best three-point man, shooter. Yeah, I was going to say, exactly. And he's, he, he absolutely does. 
<laughs> like Ray yeah. Allen, you, he's the guy you always want to uh, that shot. Jesus, so, Jesus Shuttlesworth, are you kidding me? It almost seems like they had more of a three-headed monster, you know, almost like three alphas, but they were all almost like, it was like three pseudo-alphas, you know, I don't know if they individually were ever going to be able to lead a team, you know, to, to mm-hmm. the promised land, but I feel like, you know, putting those guys together, they were able to keep their egos in check just enough to make it, was, it work. It was a logical decision because Kevin Garnett as the guy that has to score all the points plus play the great defense that he plays, he's going to be wear, worn down. He comes in 2007, NBA Defensive Player of the Year, third in MVP voting. And uh, Pierce ended up winning finals MVP, but Garnett had a huge game six to close it out against the Lakers where he, he probably felt more comfortable not having to shoulder all that offensive burden, just focusing on this defense. And he was NBA defensive player of the year that year and a champion. Yeah. I kind of feel like that Miami heat team tried to duplicate that with their big three, you know, Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, Chris Bosh in that first year, kind of going with the, you know, the, the three headed monster thing, you know, where they all kind of had a, a role, a big role in the offense kind of, you know, their own like special shots and their own mm-hmm. special plays, and their own special moments. And it's kind of interesting how I feel like that wasn't really the right formula for that team, you know, which I think is part of why they lost to Dallas. I, I think LeBron really needed just be the guy. Um, yeah. Kind of, and that was a little different. We haven't quite talked about this, but Dwayne Wade, that was his team. They had already won a championship with him. And Dwayne Wade hit the peak of his powers one of the best two guards in the history of the game. That peak was extremely short. He, I think that first, those first two years of LeBron, he was first three years or so with LeBron. He was great. I think that that first year they made the finals, he uh, outplayed LeBron in the NBA finals. That's one of the reasons they lost because they needed LeBron to be the number one guy. Um, and LeBron couldn't handle it at that point in time. So it was interesting, different dynamics because they were joining forces with someone who was already a well-established alpha and well-established champion and i think think, it took a little bit more time to gel yeah and i and i think you know i know you hate when i uh go back to lebron james every episode man but it it, it's 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 great storylines in that in that career i mean he was a person a player that really had to to understand who he was in order to take that next leap and you really saw it uh, the difference between, you know, the Dallas series, that finals in 2011, and then the OKC series of, uh, you know, the following year, you saw the difference. It's, it's, so interesting. it's so interesting to dissect all these different things, because if you look at that Heat team uh, against that Dallas team, that Dallas team was already tested. They had gone to the, the finals and lost to the Heat with Dwayne Wade and Shaq. So they had already been tested. They'd already been, they were that team that got upset by the eight seed. Um, they were, mm. a, were a team that had already been jailed for quite some time. So they had the veterans and then the heat needed that experience. LeBron needed that experience. And then the following year, they, they faced a pretty much younger version of themselves. And if you fast forwarded two, three more years, those three players for OKC, Harden, Westbrook and Durant, they would have been considered the biggest three of them all, quite possibly. 
Um, so it's, it's weird to think it, it takes time sometimes for these guys. And I'll, I want to pose you this question before we leave. If LeBron decided to maybe make a Carmelo Anthony type decision instead of a Kevin Garnett type decision and go and play in New York to be the alpha, maybe setting up another Cleveland type situation where the team, it was built completely around him and he prioritized maybe something other than, than winning. Do you think, how do you think his career would have panned out? Do you think he would have ever got a championship? Do you think he would have three championships? Do you think he? Okay. That's a great question, actually. And uh, I, I, I can actually, I can answer the question this way. Because I know he learned a lot playing with Dwayne Wade. He did. Exactly. So I think it really depends on what stage of his career and you Pat Riley and Eric Spolstra and that whole management. If you put him in that situation in 2017, I think LeBron could pull it off. I mean, there was a point along the way where I just feel like, you know, I, I just, I, I, I got to go back to that, that playoff run where he lost Kevin Love and then in the finals, game one, lost Should have won it. Should have won it. Finals MVP. That was amazing. He, he he really seemed like he was just not only a, just a, a man of, among boys out there every series, um, and this was kind of a, a, a run, a stretch over several years, at least in the Eastern Conference, where he was just so dominant. And I just feel like, man, with the horses that he had with him on some of those teams, he could have taken any team, including the New York Knicks, to the finals. You know, would they have won against like a Golden State? You know, I feel, you know, there's a lot of different factors and yeah, um, that kind of, you know, obviously brings us to this notion of like Durant being another interesting twist of the what could have been story. But, you know, it, it's like, man, that LeBron James, to me, he's not an alpha. And we, you know, we talked about this obviously before in previous episodes. He's not an alpha like Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan, but he is an alpha in his own right. Mm -hmm. um, because he does now at this age of his career know who he is and he knows what it takes to win. He does what it takes to win. He has the trust of his teammates. You know, he, everything we talk about in terms of values, uh, you know, he really does possess. What makes him interesting is that he does seem to be motivated by and influenced by extrinsic rewards, yeah. right? Um, and that's something that I think has probably been a detriment to his career and probably prevented him from winning at an even higher level than he could. However, I think because he does have such a strong sense of self and who he is, he's obviously incredibly talented and he practices the mindfulness, the gratitude. And we talked about this before and he talks about it all the time with mm -hmm his relationship with the Calm app and mental fitness and how he has captured and harnessed mental fitness uh, to help him get a stronger sense of who he is and get the most out of his performance. Yeah. And I think this is a great conversation to have. And I think it, you can see that he's developed a strong sense of self and self-awareness and who he is over the years. And it's not something he had necessarily coming to the league, like, like it pretty evident Michael Jordan had right away. And you could just look at his childhood 
And we've talked ad nauseum about how you need this comfortable holding environment, the supportive environment in order to, to set the foundation for all these different attributes to develop resilience. And I'm not saying that he didn't have that or, or did, did not have that as a child, um, but it, he didn't have that kind of core nucleus family like Michael Jordan had growing up. He didn't have a father figure in his life. So that had to play a role. And he, I think he maybe had to, at one point become, I wouldn't say he, that Dwayne Wade was necessarily the alpha that first year, but he did become like a one B or one A to Dwayne Wade that for at least that first year. And I think that was pivotal in him and his growth as an individual and that second year on, he was the alpha of that team and, and that has been ever since and hasn't looked back. And I think you're right. I think there's a lot of what could have been either way, but LeBron's a champion, a three-time champion. is going to go down as one of the two, three greatest players of all time. For sure. And uh, I, I just, I kind of don't really want to pass by this conversation without at least touching on the Kevin Durant story. And, and there's parallels. The Cause twist may, and because maybe maybe after Steph being Steph Curry's one B, maybe now he can be the alpha like LeBron is and lead the Nets to a championship. To be continued, yeah, because it was well, here's the thing. So <laughs> I, I I actually think that in many ways, God, this is tough, man. This is always a tough conversation, but I still kind of feel like the jury's still out on Kevin Durant being a true alpha. And, and I say that because when we think about the transformation that happened on that Golden State Warriors team, right? It's not the same transformation that happened with the Miami Heat team that LeBron James joined with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh. LeBron James joined that team and Dwayne Wade handed the keys to the castle to him. It was a you know tremendous selfless act, probably one of the most selfless acts we've seen in you know the history of sports. And um, Dwayne seemed to I guess know what it what it you know was going to be required to win a championship. And to his credit, um, he understood that for that team to win, uh, he had been a champion before. LeBron had to be the guy for mm-hmm. that team to win. Okay. And LeBron, it took a year, but he did take the mantle on. And when he had those opportunities and we saw his performance against OKC, I mean, we saw his performance throughout that, that year. I mean, they were amazing that year. They were probably one of the greatest teams of all time that year, actually. Didn't Um, they have like a, almost a 30 game winning streak during the regular season? I mean, it was unbelievable. And you know, they were just clicking on all cylinders. When I look at, uh, and they were led by, led by LeBron James, for sure. Um, when I look at, at the the Golden State Warriors story, I definitely see moments where Kevin Durant was big. I mean, everybody talks about, you know, when he hit the, the big uh, three-point shot, one-on-one in transition against LeBron to kind of seal uh, that victory. Um, you know, that first championship. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of great moments, you know, that, that Kevin Durant was a part of and, and, and can take credit for. But if you look at just that overall team dynamic, and, you know, we broke this down 
um, in team uh, chemistry and dynamics episode in the past, like that, that was not Kevin Durant's team. Mm-hmm. Okay. That no. was Steph Curry's team. And there was a strong alpha dog component behind that Draymond Green machine. Yeah. Right. But, uh, and, you know, Steph, Steve Kerr, you know, he definitely has a kind of an alpha persona as well on that team. He's a spokesperson for sure. Kevin Durant, to me, feels like a guy that just really inherited a great situation. I mean, for his skill set, basically, literally, he could just be an assassin. He's a great scorer. That's what he does. He's sort of like a Carmelo Anthony in that regard. Yeah, he's I was really, about to say the same thing. His ability to fill it up. Three, agile. You know, not quite as like sturdy and whatever, but he can get to anywhere on the floor that he wants to and get a shot off when he wants to. So when you have a team dynamic that's based on significant floor spacing, a lot of movement, a lot of sort of wizardry, a lot of momentum throughout the system, a guy like Kevin Durant is going to thrive. Um, and you know, to his credit, I mean, he made the right call to find the right situation for him and it worked out beautifully. Um, I just wonder if you take a Steph Curry off that team in any, any of those playoff runs, you know, a Clay Thompson, you know, one of these pivotal other players is Kevin Durant going to be the guy that steps up and gets it done. Yeah. I mean, you're always going to go back to the fact that that team already won a championship. And that team took that his team out after Durant was up 3-1 against the Warriors the year before. And that team is coming off a 72-win season or 73-win season NBA record. So you're always going to have that to go back to. But you're right. The story is not finished yet. And Kevin Durant has a great opportunity to, to paint his legacy as any way he wants it at this point. He's a champion. Now does he want to cement the fact that he's – an alpha and he can lead a team, put a team on his shoulders and win a championship like LeBron has done. Um, like Kawhi Leonard did last year. Yeah. Yep. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, what could have been? What could have been? Ooh, I like this topic. Uh, also during this podcast, I also thought, and this will be, you'll, you'll enjoy this topic. Cause I think we're going to have to tease this for at some point. We need to do a podcast on these guys that have been, placed on this pedestal from day one in high school, like the LeBron James's, like the Zion Williams, and talk a little bit to that pressure that they face when so much is expected of them before they've even stepped on the court as an NBA player. And I think that should be something that we can talk about and we can relate that to all different types of sports as well. What happens when the hype precedes you? Well, um, it, Ultimately, goes back to what you've already captured here. You know, a guy that can be—I guess you don't have to be like fully uh, neglecting of external or extrinsic rewards, but you have to at least be able to have a mechanism for just you know really activating that internal intrinsic rewards system, right? so that you're able to just kind of go fully autonomous and independent. Yeah, blinders. Right. And this is, and I think LeBron James gets it. So when I hear him say things like, I am going dark on social media, right? I'm turning off all social media. What he's actually doing is 
he is helping himself, right, by sort of cutting off that, you know, those like mm. uh, those. That, that's right? like those that, that 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 dopamine release you get when you post something to the outside world to get that external validation. And you see it. You saw him with him when he joined the Heat, where he wasn't doing this, where he was getting on stage and saying they were going to win not six, not seven championships. Actions speak louder than words. That's what he realized. Let your play be enough. Let your play lead you to where you want to go, lead you to your goals, and the rest will follow. Yeah, absolutely, man. Definitely. Um, The rest will follow. And on that note, let's uh, let's end the stigma. And let's continue the conversation. Mm -hmm.